Satya Nadella once again, because he is also very vocal about this paranoia of productivity. I want you to be right here in the office, right? Looking into my eye so I can have control, which obviously is a ridiculous concept versus people feeling burnt out. And he was saying when I was asking him about uh, hybrid work uh, approaches or what he's using in Microsoft, and he was saying that, well, you know, essentially people do come for people. Hey, hey, you're tuning in to Bill and Dollar Moves, and this is part of a bonus series. Quick takes from some of my conversations from the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum at Davos for you as you build 2023 as the important decision maker and leader that you are. It features my quick thoughts, a discussion, snippets of a panel that moved me. And if you're intrigued, there are fuller recordings either on my YouTube channel or other sources which will be listed in the show notes. Now, the cliff notes on Davos. Every January, a highly curated selection of invitees from global business, government, civil society, media, and academia converge on the Swiss town to attend sessions designed to spark productive discussions around the most pressing issues of the day and ultimately drive impact and action. Now, many people question whether the 53rd meeting would still hold relevance in a post-pandemic world given criticism of the Davos men. And as perhaps a biased first-timer, my answer is an undoubted yes. I can now confirm Davos remains an event full of paradoxes. A modest ski town near Zurich, Switzerland that otherwise is unassuming, boasts the richest and the most powerful. And yes, the juxtaposition is uncanny of perhaps the most climate enthusiasts in a week and yet criticism of private jets by billionaires and politicians taking up more carbon footprint than it should. But Davos isn't just about the keynotes. The meeting is also famous for the networking and deal-making that goes on in the corridors, side rooms, hotel suites, and Barry's piano bar of this alpine town. As one of the white badges as a young global leader of WEF, I soaked in the opportunity to learn and unlearn, contribute, and yes, chat with many a Davos man. So you're getting my inside look. Now let's get started. Sylvia, I'm so excited to see you again. It's been a minute. Uh, since Davos, sure. since we were on the Magic Mountain, but you and I were just uh, talking about how, you know, the experience is definitely one that we want to go back for again, because it is truly where the movers and shakers are. How are you feeling? Let's let's start with that. How are you feeling? What what are your top impressions? Uh, so I think, you know, two, two things we had in common after Davos was the cold plus this sentiment <laughs> of optimism, uh, which is the, the positive element of it. Um, I think it was just such a, a rich experience rich in terms of content, rich in terms of new connections, and also rich in terms of the emotional bit that it left with me, this emotional impact. So, um, you know, being, being a first timer in Davos, I, I got way more than I ever expected. So um, I truly enjoyed the experience. I think there's one interesting bit, which is how can we actually bridge this perception gap of inside Davos and outside Davos? Because what I really got to see was a lot of people who really care about the world and who are spending a lot of time and effort and energy trying to figure out what their contribution can be. Um, so a lot of intentionality and a lot of bias for action. Mm, and, and I love that. You know, I love that you brought that up. Of course, you, you're coming fresh out of Unilever. 17 years in the business, you yeah. were close to the consumer, uh, working very hard in, in ensuring, you know, the trends that you're seeing, uh, are reflected in the way that you were implementing your business. I want to get a sense from you as a, you know, business executive, right? You were managing director looking at the things that was being talked about in Davos yeah. and bringing it closer to outside Davos. <laughs> what, what do you think the disconnect there is? I think it just has something to do with who speaks about it, right? So, 
if the people who are actually present there as attendees and speakers, if they just tell your own story, I think that goes a long way in addition to just having the media maybe um, portray a certain a certain vision. And I think what, what I definitely noticed, and probably that's one relevant message to lend up front, it's people, especially key business leaders, they're seeing with a point of business reinvention. I think smart mm. leaders are just noticing that there is both enormous risk and there's enormous opportunity out there. And um, I was talking to Fortune CEO, Alan Murray, and he was also saying that seriously, very few of the key business leaders in Davos this year, they are focused on recession. Yes, of course, they believe one is coming, but it is different versus, for instance, in January 2008, when everybody was just anxious and uncertain about basically how to survive the next year. This time it's different. It's business leaders really less worried about the year ahead and more firmly focused on the next decade and what they can do about it. And I think it's all the different pieces coming together, also showing the, the interconnectedness of topics when they are being put on the table of a CEO or any other C-suite leader. I think everybody sees that AI and all the related technologies, they, they carry the potential to really completely transform the business over that certain time period of, let's say, a decade. I think they understand that the climate challenge and the energy transformation really require them to totally rethink their business models, their business setup. Um, the geopolitical instability and also the changing global landscape mean you need to rethink your global supply chain. And then lastly, just looking at um, the war for talent. I mean, that's a serious one. You need to rethink how you actually work. And when you put all of that together, it feels like a bit of the perfect storm. It feels like the poly crisis, which was a key word used in Davos. But then I think it's on us to decide. Um, either we are the, the architects of our own demise or we're the architects of our own future. Yeah. Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform. With an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets so you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit hubspot.com service to learn more. And, and I love this, you know, one of the key things that we talked about was the fact of pragmatic optimism, right? So the fact that there was a lot of conversation, not only about, yes, you know, I, I think for some, of course, we, we need to sort of understand and sort of acknowledge that within the global economy, some are already in recession, some, you know, we're sure. quarters behind, but it, it's going to be there. And yet the leaders are laser focused on being practical about what this means and the opportunities this presents. Can you tell us a little bit more when you talk about pragmatic optimism that yeah. these leaders are seeing? What 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 does that mean? Yeah, so I'm completely with you. I think pragmatic optimism, that was the dominating mindset, the dominating outlook in Davos. And maybe to yeah. give two examples of uh, the annual meeting, uh, one was a session with um, Daniel Pinto, who is uh, the JP Morgan president and COO. And he was saying that, you know, of course, things are not great, but they are much better than they could have been, right? So I think he's very true on that one. And especially if you look at the European situation and the energy dependency and how we have developed. And um, similarly, um, uh, Gitjitar Gopinard of the IMF, who is pretty brilliant, 
he was also saying, of course, it's a tough year still ahead, but at the same time, you know, it's going to get better. Um, there are signs of resilience, and she was already hinting at uh, the revision of the global economic outlook of her team, which is going to be out tomorrow. So I think there was not ignorance, there was not, um, let's say, blindness, there was just optimism and focus on the right areas, acknowledging it's a poly crisis, the planet is in danger zone, but there is things we can do. And let's, let's do that as well. Yeah. And, and I, I love to hear that. But of course, you know, you and I know, uh, the criticism yeah. of the Davos med, right? It is, is pretty, uh, strong in which it seems that we can be in a little bit of a bubble, but, but let's burst that bubble a little bit yeah. and, and go into the data, right? So the numbers, the job numbers, a lot of the numbers are looking a lot better, which is why the optimism is valid. Uh, but what about, you know, the technologies that you're seeing? I think, uh, you yeah. were sharing with me, you were impressed by the developments in, AI uh, that you were seeing that will help us out of this crisis? Yeah, I think probably artificial intelligence and quantum computing, those were the two main areas that were really omnipresent. Um, and I think rightfully so. Huh? If we just uh, focus maybe on AI, I mean, the first thing to say is that basically every other talk or panel started with a little joke, the same joke, which was, oh, my intro was not written by ChatGPT. I think, you know, by now yeah. we've, we've heard that uh, <laughs> often enough, so let's park it. But I very much heard this call to take this next gen tech plunge responsibly. So basically saying, start to experiment now to build the muscle. I think that's the one message. And we had just lots of examples thrown out there in terms of use cases of the benefits of AI. So anything from, of course, you know, automating, speeding up processes, increasing efficiencies, becoming more efficient with the use of raw materials. So again, you have the sustainability angle in there, reducing lead times, um, improving decision-making, um, doing things without buyers, um, helping identify and solve problems that humans simply may not be able to see or solve on their own. And, you know, the list just continues. And um, one number that I heard was that actually we have the chance to contribute with AI 15 trillion US dollars to the world economy by 2030. And that's huge. And I think that was also the point that uh, Microsoft CEO, Satya Nadella, who the two of us also had the chance to meet, he made quite often. Basically, mm -hmm. let's face it, we are looking for increased efficiency. We are looking for more growth. We are looking for more prosperity. There is no way we could let this opportunity for efficiency and productivity that AI is go. We need to capture it. And then he said something in a second go that was also very relevant, basically that in a second step, of course, you need to think how you can then distribute this economic surplus. So seeing AI as a way to actually even out certain income disparities and really looking at the benefits that AI can have across sectors, there will be benefits, you know, for, for education, there will be benefits for care workers, really people on the front line. Maybe it's less obvious at this stage for the wider public, but there are clear signals that it will just deliver that. And, right. um, and and Sylvia, if I may, you know, that's a sure. point that I want to dive a little bit into, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of the general public that may not be deep in, you know, what's in the white papers and, and what's being developed behind yeah. the scenes by Microsoft, you know, chat GPT until it was yeah. really mainstream. Uh, it was not really known on what the capabilities were. Can you tell us, I mean, you know, in terms of a, an example, you talked about education. What, what does this yeah. look like? And does this impact, you know, the fear is that it will 
cancel out a lot of jobs, which we desperately need at this time. Yeah. So I think the topic of it will cancel out jobs that always shows up, right? The question is though, what do you do? What else do you have to offer? Um, let's just talk about education. I think this is such a great opportunity to allow every child in the future. And of course, social inequality needs to be factored in, needs to be addressed, but every child to have a personal tutor, to have a personal assistant that will actually help you to really learn math. You know, that's a capacity that we would not have without AI. This can be huge. Now, to the point of it will cancel out certain jobs. Yes, of course, there is truth to it. But also maybe as we are currently seeing with the tech layoffs, there is a certain redistribution within an economy if the economy is working well, right? So there is spaces popping up in different places that can just absorb. Of course, it needs to be managed thoughtfully. But I think with the right intentionality, with um, the right efforts from both the public and the private sector, this is absolutely doable. Um, but yes, it, it, it gets to the point that AI for good, which you know seems to be a term, is just not good enough. We need to think AI that's really centered, it's user-centered, it's um, community-centered, it's society-centered. It needs to take into account the impact on human society. I think that's probably what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And, you know, this prompts me to go to a direction where we talked about the wall for talent, right? Oh. You know, we, I think this fear, like you said, it's, it's always going to be there because whenever there's change, you know, uh, the, the impact and, and all that is, it's an unknown, but it's something that can be addressed. And you, and I are, are fans, of course, of Adam Grant. Uh, he yes. was, you know, pretty vocal about quiet quitting uh, in the workplace and what this means moving forward. Can you tell us a little bit about what this means for the war of talent? Where are we? Is there a labor shortage? Is there uh, a surplus? Yeah. What, what does this look like? Yeah, I mean, basically, we've entered a state where it's an employee market. Yes, yeah? so I think that should be a very clear warning signal to any company, to any business leader who are for instance, didn't have diversity inclusion high on the radar yet. I mean, that sounds kind of strange anyhow, but I think it, it's still the case for some. Um, so I think, I think that, that's one part. The other one is just that that's actually a very powerful element for us as society, for us as potential employees to have an impact on companies because we choose where, where we sign up to, right? So I think this will have even more impact in terms of seeing this purpose-led business transformation across the board. Now, zooming in a bit more, um, I think there's probably two things I would like to address. One is diversity and inclusion. It does pay dividends in terms of retention and attraction. And um, of course, I personally feel very close to the topic of gender equality, being on the XCOM of European women on boards. And it's, it's, it's incredible to see that throughout the pandemic, we've actually moved backwards and we're going to now take 132 years to achieve gender equality, which is, you know, absolutely unacceptable. Um, and also looking at uh, the composition in Davos, I think you see that intentionality can happen. So there were 27.5% female attendees, which is not great, was the highest number ever, but still not great. On the other side, we had 42% female speakers. So there was intentionality how the panels were put together. I think my call to action there is then for governments and for corporations for next year. Come on, you can decide 
how you put together your delegation. So that's clearly a task and you cannot just, you know, chicken out and say it's, it's somebody else's job to do so. So I think being very, very conscious about diversity and inclusion, because diversity by itself, you know, just doesn't give you anything, will be essentially important for employees to remain attractive in, 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 you know, in the work market, in the work market today. And not just for women, um, may just focus on gender equality. I think it holds also true for men, because if you choose for the right enabling factors, that would be flexibility where I want to zoom in on next, it will benefit everyone. There's a certain element of universality to the right measures being chosen. So I think that's clearly just one area. And then secondly, talking about flexibility, which was one of the key um, topics in a session with Adam Grant, I think it's probably the number one thing for of course, HR departments to focus on, but actually any business leader to really get the head around. And um, I joined this beautiful panel, um, which was first very much talking about the four-day work week, but then quickly pivoted into flexibility as such. And um, it started with the CEO of Randstad, um, Sander van Noordender, saying that we should treat our talent more like we treat our clients. And I think rightfully so. And um, we discussed the benefits of the four-day work week. There's, you know, many trials that have happened now. And you see that stress goes down, anxiety goes down, burnout goes down, pace of work actually goes up, revenue goes up, work-life balance goes up, satisfaction goes up. So a lot that goes for it. At the same time, you also need to say that a four-day work week per se is not yet the answer to flexibility, which is the main, the main offer that um, people are craving these days, and especially, of course, younger generations. So I think we need to figure out about how to go about flexible solutions, which of course are at complexity to the system, acknowledging there is no such thing as a one-size-fits-all. You're definitely singing to my choir here, right? You know, diversity, inclusion, I think a lot of these things are so core to attracting talent, developing talent, and truly finding the best talent, right? You can't, yeah. you know, with the, the toughest challenges ahead of us, we need all of our talents and we can't afford any less. Uh, that includes men and women. But this, you know, and of course, you, you're in Europe and I feel Europe in, in many ways is far ahead compared to different regions in, in implementing this. And even this conversation on the four-day work week, I mean, in yeah. Asia, they're only starting to, to grapple with, okay, we're doing hybrid. What does this mean? You know, I, I, I'll tell you, uh, back in my day working for a large conglomerate, I had a boss who said, Sarah, I prefer you to be, you know, uh, seated here in front of the, in front of the desktop, right? Of course, uh, that, that may not be good leadership, but it shows the stereotype and, and the socialization of different leaders of the past. How do we transition our leadership styles to cater for what's ahead here? Yeah. Uh, super good question. And I think, of course, you're, you're right in pointing out that you have cultural differences and geographic um, differences. I think in the end, underneath, it's again, the leaders that can make a difference. And you will, in any place, you will have leaders who get it right and leaders who get it wrong. And uh, maybe I just go back quickly to um, Sachin Adela once again, because he is also very vocal about this paranoia of productivity. I want you to be right here in the office, right? Looking into my eye so I can have control, which obviously is a ridiculous concept versus people feeling burnt out. And he was saying when I was asking him about uh, hybrid work uh, approaches or what he's using in Microsoft, and he was saying that, well, you know, essentially people do come for people. They don't come for the policies. So yes, you can put the policies in place, but it doesn't guarantee you that you will have work, will have a workforce who will really show up. 
And um, I think it's also been clear that we need to invest more in leadership, in leadership skills. So we need to be intentional about why we convene meetings. Why do we want to bring people together? We need to give the context. We need to explain. We need to give a proper reason. We need to make sure that our meetings are really inclusive to all. So I think this it's not rocket science. It just requires you to use common sense, to think it through, articulate properly, and be choiceful. There, again, also in how you approach hybrid, there is just not one way of addressing it. And then to your point of this is just part of a wider leadership challenge and leadership discussion. And um, Hala Thomas Dottier of B Team, for instance, was saying, we do have a leadership crisis. Therefore, let's change who to change how. Um, so I think it's really about asking ourselves, how can we support the leaders of today and the leaders of tomorrow to have the guts, to have the courage, to have the heart, to have the wider understanding, maybe also of topics like psychology, positive psychology, and how to address, how to address their teams and how to address the big challenges that they are faced with. I love how you brought this up, the leadership crisis, right? You know, yeah. a lot of times, uh, you know, my generation and beyond, we get a bad rep for quiet mm. quitting, right? In that we're the sport generation. Uh, we want yeah. things a certain way. We only want to work four days a week. But, but what you're actually pointing to is, Hey, wait a minute. Times are changing. Leaders need to look beyond themselves, uh, look within totally. themselves, uh, in totally. that. You know, they have a role to play as well. But what, what, what would you say? I mean, you were in Unilever for, for 17 years. You were working directly with the consumer, many of which, of course, yeah. are the younger generation. What do the, what, what does the younger generation want in your opinion? And what do they want from the leaders and the brands that they work with? Um, uh, super good question. Looking at the younger generation and, you know, being difficult as a workforce, I think it's, it's a misperception. Um, and I'm just thinking of a study that was also published uh, and presented in Davos by Kearney with Egon Sander. Um, and it's very much about what different generations want in the workplace. And I would say the, the one sentence summary is they all want the same. So don't really think that it's that complex, that complicated. Basically, people want to be treated properly. It, it still holds true what was true probably 20 years ago people leave for bad leaders. Uh, that's, that's the main reason why people leave a company, right? So you need to look at yourself and figure out how you need to adjust. It's a bit about stepping down from that throne and just uh, yeah, being more in tune with your workforce. And it starts by asking questions. It's less about you just being sending. You need to be open to listen to your team. So you can you can actually serve your teams in the best way because I believe... Being a leader is never about me. It's always about the others. How can I support you? How can I service you? And probably one thing to take into account when you're trying to figure out how to navigate the different generations, it's just about terminology. I think in general, we are doing well when we ask people what they mean by using a certain word, how they define, for instance, the term being entrepreneurial or what does freedom mean to them? What does flexibility mean to them? And yes, this can have a different meaning by generation. If I may be um, practical about it as a leader, what does that look like? You know, what were, if you reflect on your time in leading, mm. what yeah. worked in really inspiring your team? So probably the best and shortest answer would be in my, in my space, 
Just look into positive psychology. Look into positive leadership. How can I create a positive environment where my team members will flourish individually as a team? And as a result, the business will also flourish. You want to very much focus on team members' strengths, actually enable them to identify them and see them because we are all wired and, you know, have gone through socialization. That means we're focusing on our weaknesses and development areas. Well, actually, we should be focusing on the strengths. So help them see the strengths and leverage them and therefore give them feeling of accomplishment, for instance. Um, I think as a leader, I'm there to support. I'm there to bring inspiration. I'm also there to, to, to create absolute clarity. I need to show up and tell my team, what do we want to achieve? Why do we want to achieve it? The purpose element. And also, how do we want to achieve it? What's the values, you know, within that? Then I need to help my team members. And of course, you know, being supported by leaders in my team, what can be the individual contribution? So what's, what's my, What's my role within the wider context? What's my purpose? How is my purpose being activated in this wider organization that I'm being part of? I need to make sure that my team members really feel being part of a team. I need to go for empowerment, but I need to follow up with enabling. I need to give the resources. I need to give the the clarity in the briefing, I really need to hand over and then step back. And by doing so, also create the trust. I need to create a culture of, learning and experimentation. Love that. And and I think it's something that all leaders will, will truly appreciate with those um, tangible examples there, which really, I think, speaks volumes to your leadership, uh, Sylvia. Now, I want to turn uh, to regenerative agriculture, you know, yeah. climate change. That was a big topic, right? I think every panel, oh. there was something to do with the energy crisis, the climate crisis, yeah. and everything that we're doing in this space. Uh, one of the terms was cows are not the new coal. Can you tell us a little bit of what we're seeing here with regenerative agriculture and what does this mean actually for our audience? Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're completely right. It was one of the, the, the key themes as well. Um, so I think it's all about producing more food, which we know we need, while using less of the planet's resources, which you know feels a bit stressful. And uh I think it's pretty similar to decarbonization in general. Um, so in this case, it means we need to enable farmers transition, opting for regenerative agriculture, which means there needs to be a certain incentive. There needs to be investment coming from the private sector with further support from the public sector. Coming from Unilever, you know, I still feel like I'm part of that industry, that, that wider food and agriculture industry. We need to provide this incentive bit. And we also need to provide the connections and the support and the enabling and the, the knowledge transfer in order to be able to get there. If you just look mm. at some of the numbers, I think it's just startling to see in what state we're currently in. Because actually we know that food systems, I think we all know that food systems are a big part of global challenges, emissions, deforestations, and so on and so forth. That's what's always being talked about. What is not being talked about is that food systems can actually contribute up to 37% of climate mitigation that is needed to reach the 2030 climate goals. At the same time, less than 2% of climate finance is dedicated to agri-food solutions, which you know feels very strange to say the least. I think what we're now seeing more and more happening is that 
groups within this food and agriculture value chain are coming together. And one example would be um, the Food Collective that's a communicated, facilitated by Imagine, an organization that was um, co-founded by our fellow young global leader, Valerie Keller and Paul Polman, my former Unilever CEO. And um, I had a chance to spend quite some time with CEOs of that Food Collective while in Davos. And the main idea is that you bring together CEOs, so people who really can make a decision that are representing more than 25% of, um, let's say, a certain industry, in this case, the food and agriculture industry. And together you decide what collective steps you can take to address this challenge ahead of you. For instance, in regenerative agriculture, we know we want to do it, but how can we actually do it? And it starts always with the question of what will we do together that we cannot do alone? This uh, then leads me to think about the supply chains, right? And how we're, we're reliant mm. on um, basically globalization. Uh, and it's it's gotten a lot of flack, I, I would say, in the recent years in, in, in America, uh, specifically as well, right? Where there was a push to really look domestically and ensure that domestically we're, we're doing okay. Is globalization dead or alive, Sylvia? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. And uh, I think the clear answer is it's not that. I think it's evolving. Uh, that's what I was hearing from everyone. I think actually the first thing to say is globalization does not get the credit for what it has done in recent decades, basically lifting more than 1 billion people out of poverty. I think basically every public figure was just toting the same horn of it's not the time to go into silos because this is not what gets you resilience. It's not what gets you prosperity. It's not what helps you, you know, keep the pricing levels in check. You need to do it together. Um, so a clear call for multilateralism. And I think the interesting thing is it's a concept that not only works in the public sector, but also one that works in the private sector. Um, of course, there was a lot of talk about um, the US IRA and what it means for Europe. And, um, Maybe there was a bit too much talk about um, how to evaluate it and not enough talk about how do you react to it. So also seeing this kind of competition as a source of creativity and innovation. So I think everyone uh, from uh, the German minister Habeck to the Belgium uh, prime minister, De Croix, were very much saying Europe needs to develop their own approach, their own scheme, and it needs to be rooted in European strengths, right? Um, but it was not clear what it really means. And I think they have not really concluded on that one, which I think is a pity and needs to be done. Yeah, and, and Sylvia, um, of course, I, I don't want to miss this point, but IRA, can you explain to the audience what this is? Yeah, so basically it's the, the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. And how I like to look at it in the first place, it, you know, it, it's basically a huge um, climate uh, change bill. Let's put it like that. It. It ensures much needed capital for decarbonization. Um, yes, it benefits local production, which then also means, you know, it's more green, it's more resilient, you're cutting out shipment. I think, you know, there's just something positive to it. And it should be supported by a complementary, non-confrontational European approach. Now, everybody, at least on this side uh, of the um, of the sea, would say it carries problematic aspects, especially um, related to local content requirements for certain products. And I, I totally get that, right? So it has the potential to impact the prosperity of European-based businesses. There is a risk of European-based businesses moving to the US. And you could say 
you're already seeing that happening. And there is the topic of protectionism having a destabilizing geopolitical factor. Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jiu-jitsu-loving entrepreneur and co-founder of Rocketbook. He talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a Shark Tank flop but ended with a $50 million exit. You know that's our jam. Listen to it, Talking Too Loud, wherever you get your podcasts. So we've covered a lot of ground here, you know, from the talent war to globalization. When you think about the roles of different entities, private sector, mm-hmm. right? So uh, there were basically the triple P's in attendance, right? Uh, and the, the third P that was brought up by Rania Al-Mashad, another fellow YGL, the minister in, in Egypt, is philanthropy. The role of public sector, sure. private sector, and also philanthropy in, in driving us forward here uh, from the poli crisis. What struck out to you? Then maybe talking about um, the public sector um, first. Yeah, I think some people were a bit disappointed about the absence of certain public figures, figures such as Joe Biden. Um, I get it. Um, I would not focus too much on it, to be honest. I think there was still huge representation of, um, uh, you know, of public fac- uh, figures of um, representation. And I think basically everyone was sending roughly the same messages of multilateralism. Let's do it together. Uh, we had China being present. And I think we heard a lot of what we basically wanted to see, wanted to see and wanted to hear clear messages about, you know, planned economy. That's, that's a ridiculous thought these days. So hmm, that should give us some confidence. And essentially, I think it is private and public sector working together. Like I had uh, illustrated early on, it's about each party giving signals to the other giving confidence and then we can, we can, we can actually move ahead. Now, I think my personal um, focus area is obviously the private sector and you just saw such relevant representation there. Um, there were 1,500 business leaders, the C-suite. There were 90 unicorns and tech pioneers. You had um, 600 CEOs, 80 of them being first timers, which, which gives you a sense of the World Economic Forum, the annual meeting, it's being taken serious. And people want to come together, not to discuss how they can um, earn more, but how they can actually jointly solve the problems that if they are not solved, are really all putting us in, in an even bigger crisis than we are in it today. Now, I think, I think what I'm really seeing is even more responsibility, even more opportunity, even more scope for the private sector leaders to address the big challenges of today. Maybe one one last comment to add, um, which was not directly addressed in Davos, but coming back, I was thinking about it. I think we are seeing that our business leaders also need to have more political IQ. Uh, what do I mean by it? I think there is more and more pressure for a CEO to pick sides, to speak up on essential topics. Um, and I think we're seeing that most corporate leaders are not necessarily well equipped to navigate these topics. And I think also in the US, we've seen, you know, various incidents where, I don't know, as a consumer and as an employee, I would have a very clear expectation of what 
next day the reaction needs to be from my leader or from um, a partner that I'm working with. But you are seeing business leaders struggling of how to navigate it. And then I think it's it's actually refreshing to have someone like um, the BlackRock CEO, Larry Flint, being very outspoken. Again, this year in Davos, I think you're just you know, saying what's, what's top of his mind. But he's the one who is being clear that, you know, I don't care what people are saying about certain actions being called woke. Also in his um, 2022 annual letter, he was saying that, you know, stakeholder capitalism, let's take it serious. It's not about politics. It's just not about a social or ideological agenda. It's not woke. It is capitalism. And it's driven by mutually beneficial relationships by stakeholders. Yeah. And and I love that we ended on on that note, Sylvia. You know, that was... uh part of my discussion, right? The panel that, that I was moderating was on the private equity in the real economy. And, you know, Vindi Banga, who actually uh, is from Clayton, Dubilia and Rice, which is very big in working with family enterprises, was just telling me about the scale of, you know, mm. what he thinks will be a third, two thirds of the global GDP very soon that would have had touched the private sector, right? So we yeah. are driving the change and we have a huge opportunity. And with that comes responsibility. And I think, uh, you know, the way you're ending it with the sort of the message to the leaders that are tuning in here is, you know, you have an opportunity, you have a platform, small or big, and hopefully that includes uh, making a big impact beyond the profit as well. How can people uh, find you, Sylvia, if they're looking to find out more about yeah. the work that you're doing and want to be part of it? Uh, well, I think the best way would be just to um, say hi on LinkedIn. So we'd be happy to get connected and uh, then we'll figure it out. Awesome. All right. And all of that will be in the show notes. Now, thank you for listening. And thank you, Sylvia. This was a power pack discussion. We covered a lot of ground and I think will yeah. be truly substantial and meaningful for the leaders moving forward. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chang Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chang Spellings and you've been listening to Bill and Dollar Moves.